Thank you, Johnny. That's beautiful. Julia is here. Those of you with children, if they'd like to go back and get your Bible bags for working during the service. The rest of us, I'm asking that you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's the first letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, a place he spent quite a bit of time in. It was definitely a place in need of him spending time there, as we see by his letters. We're going to start with the 18th verse in just a moment. We're going to go through the 31st verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 in a moment. This week I read something that made me wonder about what we're doing to ourselves in this educated, modern society. There is no doubt that one of the greatest strengths of the United States and of the first world is in fact public education. We not only educate everyone, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, we provide for you and get you an education, but we not only provide it, we require it. In fact, if a parent does not educate their child, we hold them legally accountable uh, for that decision. However, in this same society, we don't require parents to bring their children to church. Now, there are many reasons for that, of course. Freedom of religion, separation of church and state, the fact that worship needs to be free will and that requiring it doesn't work and so on. But I got to thinking about what the cultural practice of being highly educated and yet not uh, informed spiritually is doing to us as a culture. Do we collectively get the message that reason is more important than faith? And do we, as we value reason, set ourselves up for not only devaluing faith, but evaluating faith by its reason rather than its reality. I began thinking about all that because of an observation a scholar made about the text that we're about to read and what Paul says in our text. He says that the message of the cross, Paul says, is foolishness to those who are perishing. And the scholar noted that the phrase, the message of the cross, would be heard in the Greek language as a conundrum, as a contradiction, both to the Greeks who were hearing him say that, but also to the Jewish religious people who were hearing him say that. Because what he literally says is, hologos hotus doros. For the Greeks, for the Jews, the logos, which we translate message and preaching, so we miss the point of it when we bring it over into English language. But he's saying, for the Jews, the Logos was the law. It was wisdom. It was the mind's understanding. For the Greeks, the Logos signified reason behind the cosmic order. You've heard that Einstein called the universe more a thought than anything else. And that's what the ancient Greeks thought as well, that it's the cosmic order holding all things together is the Logos. And the Logos is also used to describe anything that uses words or reason to try to understand. So the advances of philosophy and understanding that cosmic order is the Logos. And then he concludes with this statement. He says, this Logos of the cross constitute a contradiction in terms, offensive 
both to the reasoned and to the religious mind. For reasons that 2,000 years of Christian life have shown us only too painfully, the cross of Christ does not fit the categories of religion or of reason. The cross is an offense. Many, even Christian groups, remove the cross from their sanctuary or from their theology or from their lives. It's an offense not just because it's excruciatingly brutal, as we truly see as the passion of the Christ showed, and as the experience and expressions of what it means to die, there's been no more uh, excruciating way to kill someone than the cross. So it's an offense just for its excruciating brutality. But the cross also challenges both the educated and the religious person. The cross calls us to experience and live something far more important than our education or our religion or that our education and religion can explain. Now, obviously, you can see the problem we have. We are sitting in a religious service, and we're studying a scholar. We are asking reason and religion to help us in some way grasp hold of this message of the cross, the logos, potistoros. Yet we are saying that Jesus is the one who can bring life and bring it more abundantly than we could ever reasonably expect or religiously practice. What's interesting to me as we study the words of Paul and the words of Scripture is that it starts with Paul, as he's writing this letter to the Corinthian people who have been his congregation for about three years, and he's had to leave, and now he writes back to them. He starts with this acknowledgement that we're dealing with something far greater than any of our categories can even begin to understand, that it's a great mystery that is far beyond. And unless we enter into the mystery, we miss the majesty of God, and we miss the opportunity to be living and alive in that great power that Jesus brought. So we want to start there. We want to start where Paul starts at this explanation. And then we want to see how he works it through so we can work it through as well. So Paul writing to Corinth says, For the logos of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demanded signs, and Greeks looked for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. 
But to those whom God has called, both to Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now it's that last phrase Paul's conclusion to this uh, understanding of the mystery of true faith, true life, true relationship with God. It's that last phrase that opens the door to a larger reality than Jewish wisdom or Greek reason. It's how the logos of the storos, the logos of the cross, the message of the cross comes together in helping us find true self and our true place in the cosmos, in this larger temporary existence, both physically and spiritually. In other words, Paul is saying we are nothing without Jesus Christ and his wonderful redemptive love expressed in the logos of the Storos. Our education and our religion are foolishness if they do not bring us to the logos of the, of the cross. The message of God's love is in fact something that is so profound that you and I recognize that even love itself is unable to be measured by reason, that it's an experience that is so profound. In a movie recently, I heard one of the characters say that falling in love is a socially accepted insanity. <laughs> and it's true. Love does not fit the reasonable category of how we impose the mind upon the world and upon ourselves. There's something far greater, and that's the message of the cross, the message of God's love, the sacrifice of the one who emptied himself of all but love and became one with us so that we could experience humanity and God in a way that, that we could know even if our minds cannot fully grasp, that we can experience even if our religion only begins to approximate what he came to do. Without Jesus, we perish. Without Jesus, the forgiveness of the moral law does not occur and transformation is not possible. But with Jesus, we are capable of rising far above our education and far beyond our religious experience into the true reality of relationship with the Eternal One who came to make all things possible. Now, Jesus knew that we would struggle with this whole thing. 
philosophy and reason and wisdom and religion and all the things that we've struggled with all these centuries or millennia. He knew that we would boast about our education, that we would boast about our religion, arrogantly thinking ourselves that somehow superior because of the school that we went to or the church that we attend. So on the night of his betrayal, as his trusted one was to turn him over to those who would excruciatingly kill him on the cross, Jesus took bread and he gave it to them and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and he gave it to them saying, this is my lifeblood spilt for you. When we receive the sacrament, Jesus knew that we would need to enter into something that leaves behind all the limitations of human uh, temporary mental and religious experience. We, we enter into something that we call a sacred moment, a sacrament, because it's not like any other thing. It is a, a great communion with God in which we get to be with him in this profound physical, spiritual confession, affirming moment in which we are one with God because God came to be with us and invites us to be with him. So this morning we're going to do just that. As we do in every sacrament, the invitation is extended to you simply to come and to commune with God. We do not require a person to be religiously connected, to be a member of the church or of any church. It's not a religious act that we do. It's a profoundly transformative spiritual union with the only one that can give us life and give it to us abundantly. So we take the cross, the broken body, the spilt blood. We receive the love. We receive the forgiveness. The invitation itself is to simply come and receive. Be one with God. Now the confession is of course the place we begin from that because we must confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse and to completely set aside the past such that everything is pure before him. And then we call on him to empower us to do the things we should be doing, to live the life that is truly pure and loving before him. We cannot do it without him. It's that simple and that true and that real. And it's in that confession that we come forward and receive. It's in that awareness that our bodies participate in it, that the bread and the wine literally becomes a part of the, so the self, not just uh, spiritually, but physically, becomes a part of who we are as we commune with him in oneness. Reason and religion both have their place and there's a space for them in our lives, but they do not take us to the ultimate place we need to be. Only Jesus can do that. And he does it through this means of his grace, the sacrament, prayer, worship, silence, solitude, service, all the wonderful disciplines of connecting with God are means of his grace 
through which he can change us and transform us. So receive now the invitation of the sacrament. 